You've heard Rex Barney give that fan a contract. Now it's time to give that fan a podcast. Dive into some Orioles baseball talk with your host, Ryan Blake. everybody i very much wish i was there in dallas but unfortunately nobody is and alas i am here with you for episode eight of give that fan a podcast thank you as always for tuning in i'm your host ryan blake and later on in this episode i've got an interview with coach mark roaring of dowling catholic high school in west des moines iowa he's the high school head coach of orioles fifth round draft pick carter baumler so I've got a good interview with him coming up, but first we're going to go ahead and dive into some Rule 5 draft talk, as I promised in last week's episode. Now, if you're listening before noon on Thursday, the draft happens today at noon, uh, hopefully getting this out by around 9 a.m. to give you guys a chance to listen in. Um, I don't have a whole lot of analysis, just kind of my own thoughts on what I think the Orioles might do, if there are any Oriole players that I think might get selected by other teams, but... Um, Hopefully you're able to listen to this in time, and if not, then these thoughts are kind of pointless, but perhaps I accurately called something, so we'll see what's going on. Now, there are three guys who are notable that the Orioles left unprotected, and only one of them, I think, has a legitimate shot at getting selected, and that's right-handed pitcher Zach Pop. He's coming off a Tommy John surgery. Teams don't have a whole lot of information on him in terms of what he's done recently. He was left out of instructional leagues, as were Brennan Hanafy and Cody Sedlock, the other two guys in that group of unprotected Orioles, but uh, regardless of what happens in this draft, you know, guys that end up going to other teams or guys the Orioles might select, I don't think there's going to be a lot of players that are kept around. Um, I think a lot. I think this year we're going to see a lot of guys end up returned to their uh, original teams, but obviously that's just speculation. Who knows what's going to happen? Now, Mike Elias has a history since he came to Baltimore. This will be his third Rule 5 draft. And so far, he's made uh, three selections in the past two years, four if you want to count Drew Jackson in 2018, drafted in the Rule 5 by the Phillies, and then traded to Baltimore later that day. Uh, Richie Martin was the other selection for the Orioles that year. And 2019, we had Brandon Bailey and Michael Rucker, both of whom were returned to their respective teams, the Astros and the Cubs. And it wouldn't surprise me to see Mike Elias take another guy from Houston. There's one guy on my list who stands out as a potential candidate. I'll get to him in a little bit. But Elias had some guys, I'm sure, back there that he really liked. We've already seen him trade for one in the Hector Velasquez deal. And uh, maybe he he goes that route again. But um, again, this is all speculation. I'm just going to give you some guys that I think uh, might have a chance. Uh, They have two empty spots on their 40-man roster that sits at 38 right now. So they could take as many as two guys. And the important thing to remember with the Rule 5 draft is that if you select a player, they have to be on your roster for the duration of the season or else you return them to their original team. So there are a few pitchers that stand out to me and a a few names I've seen floated around uh, on Twitter, the most notable of which, in my opinion, is left-handed pitcher Packy Naughton of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Are they still called that? I think so. Anaheim Angels. I still call them the Anaheim Angels. Naughton's a guy very similar to Alex Wells, who's a a lefty the Orioles protected this year from the Rule 5 draft by adding him to the 40-man. A soft-throwing lefty, 
good fastball changeup combination, and a guy who can throw all four of his pitches for strikes. That's obviously very appealing. Um, he doesn't have a very dominant fastball. It sits upper 80s, maybe touch 90. But um, Naughton's a guy who I think the Orioles could take a flyer on. And if you really want to make that trifecta in the back of the rotation with three lefties who might have a chance to stick with Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells, and Packy Naughton, I think Elias might try to go that route. But we'll see. Naughton's a guy who interests me for sure. Another guy uh, from the Oakland Athletics right-handed pitcher Brian Howard. Now he's six foot nine, and you would expect a guy of that stature to throw absolute gas, and Howard does not. Um, he's got pretty average velocity. He sits low 90s, which you know he's got a dominant presence on the mound, obviously at his height. But you know, a hitter steps in, you expect a guy to throw it past you, and and he's going to give you pitches to hit. Now the pitch with Howard that is his calling card is his cutter, which is is about average, a little bit above perhaps. But um, he doesn't have, you know, a great arsenal. He's got plus control, and that's really what stands out about Brian Howard. I think he's a guy the Orioles could take a flyer on and perhaps put in the bullpen if he wants to be a one-inning guy. Um, I think he's got the—obviously, he's got the build of a relief pitcher, but we'll see what happens with him uh, long-term. Like I said, not a lot of—not a great arsenal there, but he doesn't walk batters, and that's always very appealing. Uh, the Houston guy I wanted to bring up, Jose Alberto Rivera. He's a high 90s, high 90s guy. That's his, you know, he throws, obviously he throws hard, high 90s. Uh, he's the Astros' number 14 prospect. Has a chance to stick in a in a relief role, I think, pretty much right off the bat. Um, but if if Elias wants to go back to his Houston roots, I think he's a guy that they may consider. Uh, another right-handed pitcher from the New York Yankees, Garrett Whitlock, is a name who's been thrown around a lot in Rule 5 speculation. He's a big ground ball pitcher coming off of Tommy John surgery. He's got a great sinker, forces a lot of ground balls, like I said. Um, he's throwing up to 94 in the offseason as he, as he works back from that Tommy John surgery, but we'll see what happens with him. Uh, obviously, there's, you know, guys are left off 40-man rosters for a reason, and with Whitlock, there's an injury risk, but... He's got the stuff he showed before he got hurt, and he could be an interesting bounce-back candidate. Now, there are plenty of guys available in the Rule 5 draft tomorrow uh, who strike a lot of batters out, but they walk a ton as well. And I'll just throw a few names out there that uh, I think the Orioles may consider and why I think they may consider him. A uh, couple guys from the Dodgers, right-handed pitcher Marshall Kozowski. He's uh, another guy coming off of injury. He had surgery to repair his UCL this offseason, so he would perhaps start the season on the injured list, but he's a, a, a talented guy who could who could fill a role in the bullpen. Uh, San Francisco Giants right-handed pitcher Jose Marte is another guy who's been thrown around. He's a fastball slider change-up pitcher, throws him for strikes, um, has a little bit of a walk issue, but uh, he's got perhaps one of the best uh, repertoires available in the Rule 5 draft tomorrow, today. I keep saying tomorrow. I'm recording this Wednesday night. Anyway, uh, right-handed pitcher Alex Spees of the Texas Rangers. Um, he's intriguing because he's touched 102 miles an hour with his fastball. And anytime you have a guy like that, uh, it's it's exciting, it's it's fun to watch, and perhaps a guy who can fill in a a one-inning role in the bullpen and uh, and and blow some some fastballs by people. So he's he's an interesting candidate for sure. Uh, a couple lefties uh, from Seattle, Raymond Kerr. Uh, like Spees, he's another guy who throws very hard. He's touched 100 miles an hour with his fastball. But again, as is the case with all these guys I'm listing right now, a lot of walks. 
um, left-handed pitcher Matt Crook from the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, he's got a great sinker, uh, but again, a lot of walks. And then the two names that are most popular in terms of just their name, uh, the other Dodgers guy, right-handed pitcher Jordan Sheffield. And if that sounds familiar, it's probably because his brother uh, Justice Sheffield was a pretty highly touted prospect with the Yankees and now with the Seattle Mariners at their major league level. Uh, he's pitched very well in his short time. His brother Jordan has not had as much luck. He's a fastball changeup guy, uh, so it's a solid two-pitch mix out of the bullpen. But again, he's a guy who, if the Orioles were to take him in the Rule 5, he would most likely slot into a relief role. And the other guy uh, who's been thrown around a lot, uh, a name that most people know, right-handed pitcher from the Colorado Rockies, Riley Pint. Uh, Pint was a uh, first-round pick in 2016. He went fourth overall and very quickly fell off a cliff. He's a guy who has, there's some excitement to him, but again, common theme, he can't throw strikes. He falls into this this groove where he just simply cannot find the strike zone, and it's really unfortunate because he's, he's a talented guy with a pretty good arsenal, um, but he just hasn't been able to put it together in his professional career thus far. Uh, so those are a few pitchers I think the Orioles might have a little bit of interest in. Um, and I expect them to take a pitcher. I also think that they'll take a flyer on an infielder. With the departures, obviously, of Jose Iglesias and Hanser Alberto, the Orioles have a void up the middle. And it could open up a spot for some guys who are in the organization. I mentioned Ryland Bannon, Yomer Sanchez, Richie Martin perhaps could, could be ready to go, Taron Vavra. I even floated the idea of giving Chancisco a spot at second base, but I don't see the Orioles doing that. That's just kind of, you know, something that I personally would like to see happen, but I don't expect it. In terms of the Rule 5 draft, uh, there are four guys I have on my list who I think the Orioles could be interested in. Um, shortstop from the New York Yankees, Kyle Holder. Uh, if the Orioles want to fill the void defensively that Jose Iglesias left, then he's your guy. Uh, Holder is a very solid defender, but he does not have a good bat. Similar profile to Iglesias when we signed him. He wasn't expected to do anything on the offensive side of the ball, and yet he hit 377 and was able to, to bring us back a couple prospects in a trade just last week. So Holder from the Yankees is a guy who I think has a shot uh, to be a defensive infielder. Another guy, uh, another infielder from the Texas Rangers, Andy Ibanez. Um, I'm not too keen on the idea of having a guy named Ibanez play for the Orioles. A little PTSD flashbacks to the 2012 ALDS against the Yankees. I really don't want to talk about it, but when I see that name, Ibanez, I can't help myself, unfortunately. Um, he's a versatile defender. He's played at second, short, and third, so that's you know something that the Orioles could certainly be looking for, maybe fill that Ryan Flaherty-type role. Um, so again, defensive versatility, um, and he's got a solid bet. Uh, he's, he's grown into some power the last couple years, which is exciting to see. Uh, he gets on base at a pretty solid clip. And uh, his, his professional OPS hovers right around 800, which not bad at all for a guy who, who is available. And he's, he's definitely someone I have my eye on. A couple more infielders. Um, Domingo Leba from the Arizona Diamondbacks. He was suspended last year, tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs, suspended 80 games. So he missed the 2020 season. Um, and he's one of the few guys available in the Rule 5 who has major league experience and perhaps would be ready uh, without much doubt to fill a major league role right away. He's probably a second baseman. That's his best fit on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of power. He's got pretty average speed, um, but he gets on base relatively well. He's got a solid hit tool, and uh, like I said, not going to bring you a lot of power, but he'll hit some doubles, and uh, he's a guy who I think could slot in at second base uh, without any real concern that, that he you know wouldn't perform enough to, to stick around. 
Um, and the last infielder on my mind uh, from the Dodgers, a lot of Dodgers floating around here, Omar Estevez. And he's a guy I saw in the Arizona Fall League last year. A lot of potential with him. Uh, he's not a great fielder, but he could slot in it at second base, maybe play some shortstop. And his bat has improved uh, in, in his professional career. Year after year, his bat seems to get just a little bit better. He's grown into some gap power. He hits a lot of doubles. Um, and any scout that you ask would tell you that he's a bat first uh, second baseman. And uh, that that pretty much confirms what I saw in the Arizona Fall League from him last year. Um, nothing that really stands out, but a solid enough hitter to perhaps stick around on a major league club. Um, if the Orioles want to go with a safe infielder, I think Estevez is a solid pick. Like I said, Labo's got the MLB experience in his career so far. Uh, Ibanez and Holder a little bit further away. But um, the last guy I want to mention, just for fun, the Orioles don't need an outfielder, but Lazaro Armenteros of the Oakland Athletics is a guy who I've liked for a while. The problem with him is he struck out uh, 227 times in 2019, which is way too many times to strike out. But he's got some loud tools. And if the Orioles did want to go with an outfielder, again, I don't think they will. I think Armenteros could be uh, an interesting maybe swing adjustment candidate, tweak a little bit, and then you might be working with something. But if he wants to have any success, he's got to get the strikeouts down. So that's my list of potential Rule 5 selections for the Orioles. Obviously, there are a lot of guys available, and the front office knows far better than I do. Elias has done way more research than I have, but... Um, uh, those are the guys I discovered who stood out to me, who I think I would be interested in seeing the Orioles select in the Rule 5 draft. Again, I expect them to take at least one, maybe two. It wouldn't surprise me to see them go with a pitcher. They might want to slot into the bullpen and perhaps an infielder to help fill the void left by the departures of Alberto Iglesias and Renato Nunez. So that just about sums up uh, my Rule 5 draft coverage for you guys. I hope you learned a little something. I hope you have a couple names in your head now that you're perhaps interested in. Um, obviously, there's information on all these guys out there. Baseball America wrote an article where they summarized about 50 of these guys, uh, and I've seen a bunch of different people post about uh, potential players they're interested in. This was just a little list I put together of players that would intrigue me. Now, let's go ahead and dive into our interview. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, I had a chat with Coach Mark Roaring of Dowling Catholic High School. He was the coach of Orioles' 2020 fifth-round selection, Carter Baumler. I had a good chat with him, and I'm excited to share it with you. Please enjoy. My guest in Episode 8 is the head coach of Dowling Catholic High School in West Des Moines, Iowa, home of Orioles' 2019, sorry, 2020 fifth-round draft pick, Carter Baumler. Coach Mark Roaring, how you doing, Coach? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Yeah, you bet. So you've been at Dowling since 2015, which was a year or two before Carter started playing there, uh, and you were a football coach in between baseball jobs. Tell me a little bit about uh, your introduction into coaching and how you ended up at Dowling Catholic. Okay, well, um, you know, I played uh, high school baseball and absolutely loved the sports and, you know, had a cup of coffee in college, so to speak, and just never lost my passion for the game. And so kind of turned my attention toward coaching, which allowed me to be in the game and went through high school and had, you know, did, was a pitching coach in an NAI school, Mount Mercy in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And then I went on to uh, U University of Northern Iowa and was their catching coach. You know, so I made it all up to the college, college, uh, you know, coaching. And, you know, once I started a family and started having children, you know, my, my career took a different path. Uh, 
started teaching and it allowed me to stay involved in coaching and make a living. Uh, so I uh, kind of went that route. And uh, basically for the first 10 years or so, I actually spent down in Texas right outside of Houston. And, you know, if you know anything about um, Texas, you know, they're pretty big in football. Absolutely. I was coaching baseball down there, but I was also mandatorily football coach. So I got to know that side of things pretty well. And uh, when my wife and I started looking to kind of get back up close to Iowa to be by our families, um, I was willing to take basically whatever came available, whether it was baseball or football. And it just so happened that I got a offensive coordinator job that turned into a head job. Uh, and I just got in that track for about nine years. And then, uh, kind of had an itch to get back into the baseball side of things. And when this job came open, um, luckily I, I got uh, the job. Very nice. Well, you mentioned being in Texas and coaching football. I guess when in Rome, do as the Romans do. That's right. Um, now, Carter was actually – he drew some interest uh, for college football as well, and he was committed to TCU to play baseball, but he was a kicker and punter who drew a little bit of college interest. Being a football guy yourself, did you two have any any bond – regarding football at all or was it was your relationship pretty strictly baseball well at that time it was pretty much strictly baseball um you know i had been doing one sport uh for the first five years or so while i was here and then i just rejoined the football staff here the last two seasons but he had already you know kind of gone uh you know out of the football scene and onto the baseball stuff and uh full time uh but yeah he was definitely a a very good football player. You know, he he was actually a really, really good tight end and defensive end for us his yeah. uh, freshman and sophomore years. And then it kind of, you know, as he started kind of um, following the, you know, the pitching route and whatnot, he kind of graduated more to a, to a punter kicker, which he excelled at greatly also. Uh, he's just an overall great athlete. Yeah, well, some describe him as a more athletic Zach Greinke. And now what a lot of people don't realize is when a scout makes a, a player comparison like that, it's meant to be purely from a physical standpoint that, you know, this player, when you when you show up at the field, look for a guy that looks like Zach Greinke, for example. Um, but you see a little bit of it with uh, with with Carter and his delivery as well. Would you say that's a fair assessment of more, more athletic Zach Greinke? Well, you know, that's probably why the... <laughs> The pro scouts and whatnot get paid the big money <laughs> because, you know, they can project players uh, obviously a lot better than I can. But, uh, you know, I, I know Zach Granke, not personally, but I've seen him play and, you know, been a fan. And I would say that's a pretty fair assessment that uh, he, he has a lot of the attributes that Zach Granke has for sure. Yeah, well, Granke, you think about a guy who not only a great pitcher, but he can do a little bit with the bat as well. And Carter was drafted as a right-handed pitcher. He was the mm -hmm. only pitcher the Orioles selected in this year's uh, shortened draft. But uh, Carter's got some experience playing in the field as well. He, he has a great outfield arm. Uh, I saw that he maxed out at 96, sorry, 98 mile an hour velocity on a throw from the outfield. Really good at getting on top of the ball. Great carry to it. Uh, now, ultimately, I think he's he's leaning toward the pitching side of things. But uh, from a hitting standpoint, what did Carter bring to the table in high school? Well, I mean, he, he had light tower power. You know, he was a uh, a guy that had a hundred plus exit velo, uh, you know, those guys are special. And, you know, we put him right there in the middle of the lineup and, uh, you know, they either pitch around him or, um, you know, he hit it out of the park kind of a deal. So, 
Uh, yeah, he was a really, really good hitter. And, you know, playing outfield was something that we kind of did maybe just to protect his arm. Uh, truth be told, uh, he was an unbelievable catcher coming into our program. And many people believe that he could have made it to the, to the major leagues as a catcher. But, you know, in high school, when you have a special talent like that, with an arm like that, we tried to do everything we could to kind of protect him. We didn't think throwing seven innings and then putting him behind the plate would be very good on his arm. So he uh, was an athlete enough that he could go to the outfield, learn the techniques, you know, do everything we needed to out there, which allowed him to be in the lineup every single day, which obviously gives us a great chance to win. Yeah, no doubt. So I, I was going to ask you this later, but it kind of ties into what you just said. Um, when a player has a pretty clear chance to be drafted, especially as high as Carter was, um, is that player handled differently at all in high school when, when you think there's a legitimate chance he's got a shot? Or is it kind of just, you know, does he kind of just blend in with the group? Well, I mean, I think everybody understands. And we as a team, we had, you know, we had discussions about, you know, what was going on, and they all understood, but uh, it really, as far as him getting different, you know, treatment or us having to handle him with kid gloves, that really didn't happen until his senior year, and we were very, very close to the draft. Mm -hmm. You know, we are the only state that still plays summer high school baseball, and so, you know, there was an occasional time here and there where he may have had to miss a practice or maybe a game to go to a showcase or do a perfect game event where he could be seen by scouts, um, stuff like that. But otherwise, you know, that that's fairly normal for anybody like him that is draftable in the state of Iowa. Um, you know, the only, the only thing that happens his senior year is that if he is getting drafted, he pretty much misses our entire summer season because the big club, once they get their hands on him and invest the money in him, right. uh, it's pretty much done with high school, which is totally understandable. Mm -hmm. Now, we'll get a little bit more into the scouting and the, the draft process side of things here in a minute. But coming into the program, you mentioned Carter was a great catcher, and, and a lot of people thought he might have a shot as a catcher. Mm -hmm. uh, was he the kind of guy who, you know, when he came in first day, now I'm not sure if, I assume he played varsity four years. I could be wrong on that. But was he a guy who, when he showed up day one, you could tell that he was special? Yeah, um, I mean, he was physically, he was uh, much more mature than, you know, his teammates his freshman year. And, you know, he had a live arm, I believe, his freshman year. You know, I, I'm not exactly sure, but he was 84 to 86 already his freshman year. So he just basically bypassed the freshman level. He played the sophomore level his freshman year. And then we would spot start him on the varsity. Uh, he would come up for tournaments and stuff like that when we needed extra arms, you know, and he was unbeaten his freshman year. We knew he had something special there. You know, he was mature both physically and mentally, but still had a lot of room to grow. Uh, and obviously he did a great job, got drafted. Yeah, I mean, something worked out for him. Yeah. So so he was he was touching 80, 84 to 86 his freshman year. Now, we, we got to realize that's 14 years old for exactly. most kids. So yeah. that's that's very impressive. And now he's around 93, I guess now. So I mean, that's a that's a pretty significant velocity improvement from from freshman to senior year for him. So I'm I'm sure that helped him out pretty significantly. Yeah. Now, in terms of the rest of his uh, arsenal, 
I've seen some people describe his his breaking ball as a curveball, some as a slider. I've seen video of what looks like two different pitches there. Um, and then, of course, he's got a, a, a nice change up with some good depth as as his third pitch. Um, how would you describe, first of all, would you categorize that second pitch as a curveball or a slider? Do you think he's got a chance to have at least major league average both? Uh, just what are your what are your thoughts on on his arsenal and how it, it developed in high school? Well, you know he he did a lot of work in the off season. So we you know we have certain rules in Iowa where we have periods where we have to have hands off as uh, coaches, and he would go to you know different places around here. Sportsplex West was one in Waukee, Iowa, and he had a uh, a pitching coach by the name of. Mark Jennings, who played professionally and really worked with him over the years and helped him with different pitches. Uh, my pitching coach, Daryl Enerton, he also played for the New York Yankees in the 99-2000 season up in the big leagues. You know, and so he was getting lots of good advice uh, as far as pitches and the mental approach to pitching. Um, as far as his pitching, you know, he developed a, a great two-seamer with movements. Um, I would categorize his second best pitch as his curveball. Um, it's explosive. He does throw a slider, but I would say of the two, the better one is a curveball. I think it could be a big league curveball. And then obviously his changeup is coming along. You know, in high school, uh, unfortunately, I think this just happens. You don't throw the change as much as probably you could or should to develop a pitcher's change. You maybe mix it in five to ten times a game, but that that pitch is that third pitch is coming. And if he can get all three of those pitches going, um, yeah, I think he has a shot to make it all the way to the big time. Yeah, well, we as Orioles fans are very excited to to watch his progression. Now, unfortunately, he just had Tommy John surgery a couple months ago. Um, yeah. Now, that's something that obviously you never want with a pitcher, but some might argue that. You'd rather get it out of the way now than have a problem arise down the road when he's perhaps further along in his development. This way, you know, he's still 18 years old. He can get the rehab out of the way, hopefully come back stronger, maybe add a tick or two on the uh, on the fastball. A lot of pitchers do that when they're working out so aggressively to come back. Um, what do you what do you know about Carter that gives you confidence that uh, that this Tommy John surgery is just a bump in the road and that he'll be able to bounce back no problem? Well, I talked to him recently and. He's actually back in West Des Moines finishing his rehab after his stent in Florida after the surgery. And, you know, I think the most important thing is, is that his mindset is good. You know, he's positive. He's going to come back stronger than before. He's got a great support system here with his family, with us as coaches, with the people over at Sportsplex West. He'll, he'll come back strong. He's got an unbelievable work ethic. You know, there were times in, in high school where I was almost wanting to pull the reins on him a little bit because he just worked, worked, worked. He did our work, then he went and did extra work, then he got in a lesson, then he did a couple lifts on his own. And, you know, I was just, I was more worried about him getting an overuse injury than anything. Right. But, uh, I have no doubt that he'll come back stronger than he was before the accident or before the injury. That's awesome. Well, I, I got to say, Coach, so far you're doing a pretty good job at selling Orioles fans on this kid. We're all we're all very excited for this. That was just oh. my school teacher. Oh, I see, I see. No worries. So yeah, like I said, you're you're doing a good job selling him so far. Now, what I really want to get into because I I have career aspirations as a scout, 
Uh, I actually moved to Arizona um, last September in pursuit of that new career and unfortunately had to come back home to Maryland due to COVID. But how were you as the as his high school coach? How were you involved in uh, in that draft process? Walk me through that a little bit. To be to be honest, um, when he came to high school practices and things of that nature, we as coaches kind of consciously consciously didn't want to talk to him about the draft stuff too much. We wanted to allow him when he was here with us to just be a kid, to enjoy himself, to have fun with his teammates. Um, I knew that his his father and he had an advisor, uh, Mike. I uh, think it's Piper, uh, his advisor. Now I think it's his agent. Um, you know, did a lot of the, the, the talking and, and talking to clubs and, and different things about, you know, draft process and whatnot. And, you know, they kept me informed and this and that. But as far as Carter and I having sit down conversations on a regular basis, you know, we didn't do that too much. We just tried to, uh, you know, keep it high school. Letting me be a kid and have fun. When I started really getting involved was probably three, four months leading up to the draft. Um, I would get teams with their advanced scouts or somebody in their department would call me personally. And when they, you know, they want to do a background check and, you know, talk about his personality, his work ethic, et cetera. And, you know, we'd have a, a long conversation on the phone. Um, and I figured that if they were getting to the point where they were calling me as his high school coach, that things were probably getting pretty serious. And I would say that there was probably, I know that Carter talked to, I think, all 30 plus teams, but I think maybe five teams ended up giving me a call and really getting aggressive and, you know, wanting to do a deep dive on his background and stuff with me as far as, you know, I was concerned. So, and it was interesting that those were, I think, some of the clubs that were really big on him on draft day. I, I take it the Orioles were one of those few clubs that, that gave yeah. you a call personally? Yes. Yep. Good. And there were a few others. And, you know, like the Blue Jays was one. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of another one. But I know the Blue Jays were one. Yeah. But I talked to three, four, five scouts. You know, that did their due diligence, if you will. Carter was a guy going into the draft, you know, especially with it being truncated to just five rounds. He was mm-hmm. a guy who a lot of teams expected to honor his college commitment and be a very tough sign. Now, the Orioles went under slot in the first round by taking Heston Kierstad out of Arkansas, which yep. left them room for Carter and Kobe Mayo in the, the fourth and fifth rounds. Um, were you surprised? I, I shouldn't ask if you were surprised because obviously you were his coach and you expect big things from him, but. Did you expect him to follow through on his uh, his college commitment, or did you think that you know if he does get selected in the draft, if the team's got enough money, he'll probably sign? Well, you know, we were over at the draft party and hanging out, you know, and and uh, you know, I kind of knew as a head coach going in that they had a certain number in mind that could entice him to go the major league route, and um, you know, it was it was just kind of up to if a club was going to meet that, um, you know, they were really in a, in a good situation. You know, it was a win-win situation. He's either going to go play baseball at TCU or go to a pro club. And, you know, when you're a high school player, uh, those are two pretty good options. 
So, you know, it was an exciting day. And, um, you know, there was a couple clubs that even called in the, the 70th, 79th, 77th pick, you know, and, and were very interested. And for whatever reason, the situation wasn't right for Carter. And, um, you know, it got to the point where, you know, as a head coach, we're getting into the, you know, later fifth round there, fifth round, and we're thinking, okay, maybe he's going to play for us this summer, you know. And, and then all of a sudden, the Orioles call about uh, 10 picks ahead of their slot. And, you know, they figured out the money situation, and it was enough to, to get him to sign the deal. And, you know, it was, it was awesome to be part of that experience. You know, I've been a coach for 20 plus years and, you know, that's the first time I've ever been kind of at a draft party like that. And it, it's, uh, it's definitely not what you see on TV. There's that's a right. lot more stress. There's a lot more anxiety. You know, and it was just awesome all around to see him and the family and all their friends enjoy what happened that day. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine the emotion that must be involved in a time like that. I mean, especially as, you know, getting to see someone that you've coached for a few years take that next step in his career. I mean, I'm sure, number one, his emotions were running wild, but that's uh, I'm, I'd love to be part of one of those experiences one day. That's that's pretty cool. And he's a guy who, when when he was eventually selected by the Orioles, you know, a lot of the analysts were saying, I mean, this is a steal. This is a kid who potentially is a first-round talent if he went to college and developed for a couple more years. And uh, so I got to say, as, as Orioles fans, like I mentioned before, we're very excited to have Carter. We think he's, uh, he's, he's going to prove to be a pretty solid pick. And we're uh, itching to get him back from his, his Tommy John surgery and, and hopefully on the mound here at uh, Camden Yards in a few years. So we're very, very excited for that. I look forward to it, it also. Yeah. Yep. Coach, thank you very much for taking the time to join me. Uh, I really do appreciate it. It's good chatting with you. Good getting to know a little bit about Carter and, and the high school days and and uh, hope to stay in touch. And uh, please send him our best from, from uh, all of Orioles Nation, all of Birdland out here. Tell him we're rooting for him. We're thinking of him coming back from Tommy John, and, and we're excited to see him in the future. Sounds great. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Coach. You bet. All right, that was Coach Mark Roaring of Dowling Catholic High School, home of Orioles 2020 fifth-round selection Carter Baumler. I hope you enjoyed our little discussion there. Next week, I will be chatting with the coach of Orioles' fourth-round pick, Kobe Mayo, Coach Christopher Fitzgerald of Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. I'm very much looking forward to that one as well. That will wrap up our little December uh, draft pick coaches series, if you will. And then we'll be taking a little bit of a break for the holidays, and we'll be back in January with some more content for you guys. Very excited for the future of this podcast and what's to come. As always, I'm your host, Ryan Blake. Thank you to Tony and Derek at Utah Street Report for hosting the pod, and we'll see you next week.